Hello, and welcome back to the Healthy and Happy podcast series. Um, I'm glad to have you join us today. And we are joined with a special guest, um, Dr. Terry Backow. And I am really excited about this conversation. Um, uh, Dr. Backow is, is a, a psychologist in um, New York and uh, has written a, uh, a really good and useful book on um, worry and anxiety. And um, I'm, I'm really excited and, and think that uh, she's going to have some really helpful things uh, to share with, with you listeners as, you, as we talk about anxiety and worry and, and maybe some of the other things going on. So, so Terry, do you wanna take a second and, and introduce yourself? Sure, um, thank you for having me. I, as you mentioned, I'm a psychologist and I work with older adolescents and adults. And I live on the Upper West Side with my family. And I specialize in evidence-based therapy approaches for anxiety and mood disorders and ADHD. And in this book, I decided to focus on worry, especially in young people. So the book, which I hope we'll talk more about later, is targeted um, to really the young adults and the, the teenagers that are struggling with anxiety. It's CBT, which I'll talk about in a bit, cognitive behavior therapy, is something that I know quite a bit about, and the book incorporates those strategies. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> what, uh, again, just a little bit about you personally, how did you decide to go into to psychology and, and uh, kind of share with us a little bit about your journey? Yes. I trained at Boston University where um, they really focus on the kind of intersection between research and clinical practice. And actually at that time, I did a lot of research as a research assistant and as um, you know, doing my doctoral dissertation and other studies. I really learned quite a bit about cognitive behavior therapy as well as other approaches, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. I mean, it's alphabet shit. These are all these acronyms right. that really describe approaches to treatment that are informed by science, where they've been tested in, in the lab and research studies that compared to what we call treatment as usual are found to be more effective. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and CBT, um, ACT, yeah, they, it's... Uh, it is a bit of alphabet soup, but it these these approaches are are easier to to validate because they have specific interventions and and tools that can be incorporated into research more easily than than some of the other models of of therapy or, or intervention. And so it's uh, they're, they're well established and well um, well studied well-validated and, and that's really good. So how long have you been practicing? At this point, over 20 years. Time goes by fast, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. You wake up and, and a decade is gone and wake up and another decade is gone. So it, it is, it's, it's kind of crazy. So um, why did you decide to, to write about anxiety and worry? Well, the number one most diagnosed mental disorder in the United States and beyond. And it's the most commonly diagnosed problem. And you know, over 40 million Americans suffer from it. 
as well as young people, you know, between the ages of 12 to 17 is when we see children with increase in anxiety disorders. And um, it just so happened that I started writing the book during the pandemic. And I think that was really, oh my gosh, I was stressed out myself. It was just a, a moment that I felt that this resource was most needed and that people were really struggling more than ever with anxiety and mood disorders. Why do you, why do you think that we see such a, a pandemic of, um, of anxiety, an epidemic of, of anxiety in our society? You mean during the pandemic? Well, and even just in general. I mean, anxiety, like you said, anxiety is, is just such a problem that so many, so many of our listeners struggle with, right? So I think, well, obviously, we know that there is a genetic piece. So there's a neurobiological piece. When the family is highly genetic, highly heritable, but then when you have a stressful environment, it really can combine with the genetic predisposition to bring out the anxiety problem. And I think we live in a culture of perfection where there's so many demands on us. There's so much pressure, you know, pressure to be perfect, to be like everyone else, to perform well. It's a really performative kind of culture that I think we're in right now. And I think that's making everyone incredibly stressed. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, and I think, I think when another thing that sort of compounds that is that um, we don't, you know, we, we get so many things going on in our lives at that, that so many people don't, don't do a very good job of, of taking care of themselves and of, of feeling, filling up, their their resources and and so they get this imbalance between stressors and and resources and and anytime you're in that kind of a situation where where your stressors are outweighing your resources something's going to give and and frequently that something is is the development of anxiety right yes and you know burnout is really burnout is not what anxiety is but if you are prone to anxiety, you may be more prone to burnout. And I think we're seeing much more of that these days. There's a culture of overwork as well, you know, 60 hour a week, and we're just not stopping. And like you said, we're not really taking care of ourselves as much as we used to. Yeah. Um, what, uh, <clears throat> how do you define anxiety? So I think the most crisp, the definition that I could provide is that it is an overestimation of the likelihood of danger and an underestimation of our ability to cope. You know, we overreact and really freak out and we underestimate the degree to which we can handle things. Yeah. Say that again. That was really good. An overestimation of the likelihood of danger and an underestimation of our ability to cope. That is a really good definition. I really like that. Um, yeah, the, the easiest definition that I know for anxiety is, is uh, not as good as that one. But I, I typically talk about anxiety as worrying about what might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, where so often depression is worrying about what has happened Anxiety is worrying about what might happen, um, and I and I, but I, I really like that. I might steal that from you. 
that, like you said, the definition of worry is future-oriented. It's making prediction, and a lot of times we make catastrophic prediction. Like, we really assume the negative, we assume the worst is going to happen. Yes. And, and I also really like that you add an underestimation of our, of our abilities to cope. Um, because frankly, I think, I think that's a huge issue and a huge problem culturally now is that, you know, I, I do think we really underestimate our abilities. Um, and, and so many of us are, have the ability to be so much more resilient than we think we do. And so we, which just exacerbates the problem, right? Because if you're worrying about not being able to meet the challenges, then that just grows the worry, right? What's what's the difference between normal um, worry, nervousness, um, and and a and a clinical anxiousness? Yeah, so normal nervousness is proportional to the situation. It is adaptive, you know, anxiety protects us from danger. So when danger is present or you have a test coming up, it is normal to be anxious. It's temporary and proportional. Whereas more problematic anxiety tend to be out of proportion to the situation and more chronic and ongoing. And how you could tell when it becomes really problematic is if it starts interfering in your life. If your anxiety is, you know, occurring on a near daily basis and you're finding that maybe you're canceling plans or you're not sleeping as well or you're not functioning as you normally do, then it's a good moment to seek help. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really w- well said. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's, when it, it's disrupting your life, right? And, and a lot of people will think that if they're nervous, they have anxiety and, and you know, that it's normal to, ha- to be nervous about things. It's normal to worry about things, but it's not, it's not normal to feel like you're at a, a nine or a 10 for something that is a two or a three. Um, now, if you've got a nine or a 10 issue, then it's proportional to worry at a nine or a 10, right? But if you've got a two or a three issue, then you don't want you don't want to be reacting physiologically, cognitively, emotionally, as if it were an, an eight, nine, or a ten, right? Exactly. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, what would you like the readers to know or the listeners to know about your book? Well, the first maybe piece that I'd like to share is that none of us really have time to read these days. Many of us are really busy. Just to be honest, we're just busy. And this book is readable. It could be given as a gift. It's not intimidating. It has um, spaces to write. You know, there's a journaling part of it. And then the rest of it is sort of bite-sized pieces of information about how CBT strategies can be used to manage anxiety. So I think that the book is really disarming. And there's also, um, at times, there's some humor in there. You know, I have a few jokes here and there. So I think it is a really soothing, pleasant way to learn about anxiety, especially if you don't have a lot of time. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that I that I really liked about it as I as I got into it a little bit is it's it you've done a really good job of of taking somebody by the hand and helping them in a very non um, threatening way to be able to um, to break worry down and and incorporate some some great tools in here. Um, so who who is it for? The book is for tweens, teens, young adults, and everybody else. You know, it's really it could be read by anyone. I mean, it, it's youth targeted, so there's some reference in there that I think young people would appreciate. But I think that anyone can read it. Um, however, I do think that young adults and teenagers would benefit maybe the most. Why? Well, like I said, we're already just rest out teens, rest out young adults. If they like to just pick this up and flip through it, I think they will find it most helpful at a lot of the topics that I cover, I think are pertinent to young people, including social anxiety, social comparison, insecurity, perfectionism, the pressure we put on ourselves, the degree to which we maybe feel left out or we're comparing ourselves to others. I talk about romantic relationships in the book and about um, you know, academic and other kind of pressure that I, I think these topics are really relevant to what young people are going through. Absolutely. So, um, so if, I, if I was, I don't know, if I was 15 and, um, which I was about a hundred years ago, if I was 15, and worried about um, dating, or um, you know, worried about fitting in. What what might I do? Well, the first thing you would need to do is sort of recognize that you're not alone. That everyone struggles, and I have a section about this is something we're all going through right now. That's the first step. And then beyond that, I would encourage you as 15 years old to kind of identify what are the thoughts that you're having about the situation, what are the specific worries. You know, when we think about worry, it can be free-floating, but you have to pin it down. You have to really identify the actual interpretation you're making about the situation that's causing you to feel worried. So I would say you have maybe... 15, 20, 30 thoughts floating in your mind right now about the situation. What is the one that's trending? What's the kind of number one concern that you have? And then once you've identified that concern, we can examine it and we can use CBT methods to examine the evidence, see whether your worry is valid. You know, it might be understandable, but it also may be um, an overreaction. You might be catastrophized or got overthinking. And then I have techniques to help you change your interpretation. Yeah, that's so. If, so if I if I think that um, you know that that nobody likes me, um, and um, say there's a dance coming up, and and I would really like to go to the dance, and I'd really like to to ask someone out, but I don't, or ask somebody to the dance, but I don't I don't think that anybody's going to want to go with me because I don't think anybody really likes me. What would you do with me? I would point out that you are personalizing, which is a thinking trap. 
and you were also self-blaming, you're disqualifying the positive, you're undermining your view of yourself, and you're also mind-reading and maybe fortune-telling. The fortune-telling is when we predict the future. So and we say you're making all these predictions that no one likes you, which is mind-reading. You're predicting that an outcome is not going to go well. And you're being really hard on yourself. Yeah, yeah. So what do I do about it? Pardon? So what do I do about it? What you would do is you would challenge the negative thinking. You would examine, do I have any evidence for these thoughts? Do what? Sometimes the only evidence we have is that we feel that this might happen. And emotions aren't facts. Feelings are not facts. So I would encourage you to remember that feelings aren't facts to find more valid sources of evidence and to not avoid the situation. You know, avoidance and anxiety are best friends. They really collude with each other. And the more you avoid, the more anxious you get, the more you believe that it's insurmountable. So I encourage all my clients to really face their fears and do what's hard for you, you know, show up and don't, don't cancel the plan. Don't stay home, attend the den. See what happens. And also, if it doesn't work out, we need to reframe that as well. Yeah. She hit, for you, for you listeners, she hit a couple of things that I think are just absolutely essential that I want to, I want to um, punctuate here. And, and one of them is that feelings are not facts. One of, the, one of the facts about our brains is that you can, you can believe something and feel something with a great deal of conviction and be totally wrong. And, and so just understanding that, that just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that that is true, is so empowering. And, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I talk about this, Terry, is that, um, you know, we as, we as human beings have the ability to command our thoughts. You know, if I say to you, think about an apple, you can think about an apple, right? Or if I say, think about, um, I don't know, French fries, you can think about French fries, right? But if I say to you, hey, I want you to feel embarrassed right now, you can't just feel embarrassed, right? Or I want you to feel really happy right now. You can't just feel. So we as human beings have the ability to command our thoughts, but we but our feelings are a function of how we're thinking and our uh, and and how we're interpreting events that are going on in our lives. Um, just a good basic cognitive cycle, right? Breaking down. And and the other thing that that she said is so often we'll have this litany of 20 or 30 thoughts that are just bang, bang, bang. And nobody's going to want to go with me to the dance and, and nobody likes me and, and nobody's going to want to ride in my car. And, and then I'm not going to have anything to say. And, and, and I don't really have any clothes to wear and, um, and my hair is going to not look good. And so we just like start pounding ourselves with all of these thoughts. And if you can, if you can stop and, and slow down and say, okay, what is the, what's the core of this? Um, and she, she also mentioned several cognitive distortions um, that get in the way. And, and you, can, you can Google um, cognitive distortions and see what those are because 
most of us have have a few cognitive distortions that we we like to use over and over and over again. Um, and if you can recognize what they are, then just understanding how your brain works and understanding some of the facts about um, how we feel and how we think is so empowering and opens up space to make a lot of good change. Yeah. And I think you bring it up another point, which is about rumination. It's sometimes the thoughts blend together and they could be sort of a vicious cycle, but kind of obsessing over really kind of having a flow of money thoughts at the same time. I would recommend for that is really some sort of action. So instead of kind of staying in your head and ruminating, to try to take some kind of action to solve the problem. So you could maybe be obsessing about a test that you have, or you could study for it. You know, and now that it's kind of maybe over, an overly simple example, but there are many things where we're ruminating and nothing's happening, it's not productive. So then I encourage people to make a plan and take some kind of action that can really stop rumination in its tracks. Yeah, um, really, really a good point. Because and I don't and I don't think it's an overly simple because a lot of times we'll we'll spend lots of time. I mean, I I, I see this with my kids and parenting all the time. We'll you know we'll argue about doing some task for three to five minutes, and the task is a a minute task, you know, or a thirty second task, and and we waste a lot of time um, worrying about things instead of just doing them. The other, the other thing that you said that I just, I want to make sure to punctuate is that the very worst thing that you can do for anxiety is to avoid. When you avoid what, what you're worried about or what you're anxious about, that worry or anxiety grows. You know, if I'm, if I'm anxious to fly um, and I have an opportunity to fly and I don't fly, then the next time I have an opportunity to fly, that anxiety is bigger. If I, um, you know, if I want to ask that cute girl out or whatever, and um, and I don't because I'm I'm feeling anxious about it. Well, the next time I want to ask somebody out, the anxiety is going to be bigger. And so when you cope through avoidance, your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, because you avoid more and more and more things. And so your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so by, by doing what she said and coping and, and doing the thing, go ahead and ask the girl out or ask the boy out or go ahead and get on the plane that there's tons of research that shows that most of the time, what we worry about never actually happens. And so by doing it, we we decrease the the anxiety and your world gets bigger and bigger. So that's a, just another good point that I wanted to make sure to punctuate there. Yes, I actually encountered a study recently that said eighty five percent of what we worry about never happens. Yeah, yeah. I I read a study not too long ago, um, and I've actually shared it on this podcast. But um, the study that I read said almost ninety percent of what we worry about never happens. It was like 88 point something percent of the time. And then in the remaining 10% of the time that the worst case scenario does happen, people reported that 
almost 70% of the time, it wasn't as bad as they thought. Uh-huh. So if you put that, if you put that together, 90% of the time, your worry or anxiety is completely wasted. And in that remaining 10%, 70% of that time, it's also not warranted. So that means 3% of the time is our anxiety warranted. But- and so for those of you that struggle with anxiety, if you think about that, think about the time that you're spending worrying about something and and how frequently it actually happens. Yes. And I call this anticipation dent. I encourage people to not get stuck in anticipation dent. Anticipation is a waste of time. It's really, um, again, we're ruminating, we're predicting, we're really upset, and then you enter the situation and it's totally fine. Anticipation is always worse than reality. Yes, it is. And I, I mean, I, yeah. And I don't know how many times in my own life or, or like with my wife or whatever, um, there will be this thought of, oh, it's not going to be very fun, or I'm not sure I really want to go or whatever. And then we go and we do it. And most of the time it's enjoyable. Most of the time it's, it's a, it's a positive experience. Yeah. And like you said, if it doesn't work out, it's still okay. Right. Yeah. Um, very, very, 3% of the time is what the research shows about 3% of the time your, your anxiety is going to be warranted. And for most of us, we worry, we, we put way more energy into that 3% than, than it warrants. Than it I really have a link in my book, which is statistics are on your side. I like that. I like that. Yeah, statistics are totally on your side. And and I also I, I really like for those of you that haven't seen this book yet, I want you ought to you ought to get it. But I really like how you've broken down into these simple questions. Um, like I just I just opened up to thinking out loud. Pick a worry that has been bothering you. You can choose one that you've already written about previously or select a fresh one. Be really specific. Now answer the following questions. Worry. So you write down what the worry is. What am I saying to myself right now about that worry? What story am I telling myself about this situation? What specifically am I afraid of? What is the worst possible outcome that could happen in this situation? Of all the worries going on in my head now, which one is trending the most? So it's, it's so helpful just to break that down because there again, things just start feeling really cloudy, right? When we start to worry. And so such a useful tool to just ask these simple questions to break it down into, into chunks that you can actually do something about. Thank you. And the point of that exercise was to encourage people to really identify the automatic thought and the specific worry so they could examine it from a distance and use strategies to challenge it and reframe it. And one of the other um, helpful pieces I believe is that I provide in the book something called coping statement. And what coping statements are, are really sort of a shortcut. It's a quick reframe. If you can't kind of challenge your own thought, you're too overwhelmed, it's best to come up with just 
a really short, true leading statement, such as, I've got this, I can do this, or this is rough, but I can handle it, or it's going to work out, it's going to be okay. And that's just a really simple kind of shortcut that we can use. Absolutely. And we have, we, you know, most of us have these, like I said a second ago, have these sort of pet um, worries or pet cognitive distortions that we, that we go to. And, and so if you keep, you know, if you keep stepping in the same puddle, then you can say, okay, I know I'm likely to step in this puddle. What am I going to do instead of that? Right. And, and then you can, you can have some, some ammunition already prepared so that when that button gets pushed, instead of going ahead and stepping in the same puddle again, it's, ah, my shoes are all wet. You can, you can actually implement what you've already prepared to be able to avoid that. It's a super powerful tool. Thank you. I think so. I think it's nice to have a variety of options. And especially for when you're feeling overwhelmed, the kind of idea of coping ahead can be useful which is making a plan for how you're going to get through a situation and having some of these coping statements handy can be helpful. Yeah. Um, so how treatable is anxiety? Can you repeat that? How treatable is anxiety? How? Treatable. Treatable, thank you. So anxiety, thankfully, is highly treatable which is the good news, you know, I think that when you're in the middle of it, it feels like, you know, really hopeless, it could be really overwhelming. But the good news is that these therapy approaches are really effective. CBT in particular, the gold standard when it comes to treating anxiety disorders, as well as ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, really effective. And medication can help as well. I think I need to bring that up, you know, I always encourage um, people to try therapy because it's nice to see if you could do it without medication. But to combine medication with cognitive behavioral therapy can be even more potent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and like she said a second ago, statistics are on your side. Um, anxiety is is a plague among us. And, and the reality is that there are so many things that you can do if you're struggling with anxiety and, and you do not have to, you do not have to stay trapped in anxiety. Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that, that is most challenging about anxiety is, is recognizing that it is anxiety because we, we typically, experience anxiety as it, as a physical symptom, right? We, you have pain in your chest or accelerated heart rate or a pit in your stomach or um, your face might flush or, you know, so, so, so often we, when, when somebody experiences anxiety, they're feeling physically something. And, and I think that that, um, that makes it difficult for people oftentimes to recognize. Um, I don't know what to say that, how to say that uh, the, 
the, the subjectivity or the needlessness of the anxiety. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that it's incredibly uncomfortable to have that sensation. It's really painful and uncomfortable. And in, the, the, in those moments, it seems like you can't feel better because these sensations are so overpowered. The good news is that, again, this is treatable in the sense that a lot of what we do for this kind of panic is we encourage folks to decatastrophize their sensation. We do psychoeducation and we provide information. These are just feelings that they may be uncomfortable. However, they don't mean anything. So sometimes I'll have a patient who maybe is having a basic heart, short of breath, and they're worried they're going to pass out or maybe have a heart attack. And having those thoughts about your feelings can make those feelings more intense. So a really simple solution is to reframe when you're having the feeling, this is just a feeling, this is like fight, a flight system getting activated, this is anxiety, it can't hurt me. And to really just almost write it off and yeah. to move on to life. Yeah, so any of you who are listening, everybody listening to this has gotten through every single anxious moment in their lives. Anxiety has not killed any one of you. And so as uncomfortable as it is to, to be anxious, and I'm not minimizing that, I've, I've felt anxiety in my life. Um, and as, as uncomfortable as that is, you've made it through every single one. And I think that just that is, is empowering to know that when you start feeling anxious, that you don't have to be afraid of anxiety. That's one of the things that I see with the people that I work with most is I, I call it meta anxiety. And yes. so you've got like, you've got like the, the actual thing that you're worried about. And then you pile on top of that worrying that you're going to feel anxious about whatever it is. And that meta anxiety is what is totally unnecessary. Right. I couldn't agree more. I actually have a page on that in my book. I call it Mother Worry, which is worry about your worrying. Yes. Already stressed out, and now you're worried about being worried. And in addition, I have a page on discomfort about the idea that a lot of what we're concerned is going to happen when we feel anxious is that we might feel uncomfortable. And so maybe we'll cancel plans because being with this person might make us uncomfortable. And I'm not saying that you need to keep the plan if you really don't want to see the person, but I also want to encourage everyone that discomfort is temporary. We experience discomfort on a daily basis. It's not catastrophic, you know, we get up early. Yes, we can do it. We can be uncomfortable. Yes, and just, just by reframing that and, and saying, I it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to feel anxious. It's even okay to have panic attacks. Any of you that have had a panic attack, they're horrible. Panic attacks are horrible. But again, if you've had them, you've gotten through every single panic attack that you've ever had. They don't last and it's okay. One of the things that, um, that I like is, 
is taking the the uh, curious observer stance, right? If if you can say, okay, I um, I I'm just going to observe and notice what I'm experiencing, and then then you might say, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I have this patient to go see, or you know, maybe it's you know I've I've got this podcast, um, and I'm feeling a little nervous about it. Huh? That's interesting. Why am I feeling nervous about that? And when you can just take that, take yourself out of that, and 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 be a curious observer about what's going on inside, it's super empowering. It is, and it, you know we refer to that often as mindfulness. Which is the skill of mindful detachment or diffusion. It's strategy of looking together from a distance without judgment, without reacting, without overinterpreting, and just being curious. That could be incredibly helpful. I completely agree. And one of the most wonderful things about this life is that we get to feel. It is, it is such a wonderful thing. It's a blessing and it's a wonderful thing to be able to be happy, to be able to be sad, to be able to experience what it feels like to be embarrassed or turned on or, or nervous about something. The, 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 the fact that we have the ability to feel is such a great thing in life. And, and it would be really, really sad to not have that. And we, and consequently we don't have to be afraid to feel. Yes. And I'd like to follow that up by saying emotions have functions. Emotions have many different functions. You know, they give us information. They give other people information and they inspire us to take action. And emotions are adaptive. They really, from an evolutionary standpoint, are functional, which is why babies cry. You know, they're trying to get attention. It works. I think you're really bringing up such a good point that we need to accept our feelings and not reject them and not be afraid of them. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, yeah. One of the ways that I talk, that I talk about mindfulness and that I like in mindfulness is, you know, you, we, we mess up in, in two places. We mess up if we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge and feel what we're feeling. If, if we damn our feelings before before we let them come in and we also mess up if we damn them inside if we if we don't let them flow through and so if you can kind of think of that as letting yourself notice and experience what you're feeling and let those feelings flow through that's a great way to picture mindfulness and and letting it let letting it come in because if you damn them before they come in you're still going to have to deal with them but the only difference is then your brain has to deal with them on its own. And, and our brains are organs and they don't do a very good job of that. And so by, by being purposeful and, oh, that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, that, that's interesting. My heart is, is racing over that thought. You know, you can, you can acknowledge what you're feeling and then you can let it, you can let it flow through. And that's, it's a, that's a good tool yeah. too. Yes, and you should not keep your feeling inside. You should not reject them or suppress them. You should express them. Um, you could do that by writing, journaling, or yeah. by bending. Really, yeah. So obviously, you know, 
that's doing in the component of my book because there is an intervention that we call worry time, which is making an appointment to worry, really setting yeah. yourself time to get this thoughts and feelings out of your mind and onto paper. And it's really private, no one can see it. But if you're brave enough, I encourage all people to also tell loved ones, family members, therapists, um, friends, what's going on with you to really air out those feelings and express them instead of keeping them inside. Yeah. When they get stuck inside, that's when they cause harm. And, and it can be, a, it can be very good and healthy for relationships too, to share like that. Well, Terry, I've, I've really enjoyed our time together. It's been really fun to, to, uh, to talk to you and to, um, to look at your book and uh, you're, you're doing great work. Um, a couple of things. I, uh, any closing thoughts? And then also, how can people find you? Can you repeat that? How can people find you? Yes, yeah. So people can find me via my website, which is drdrterrybacker.com. And also on Instagram, well, I'm quite fond of, and my account on Instagram is at Dr. Terry Becker. I am also on Facebook, Terry Becker's Private Practice, and on LinkedIn. And um, those are the best ways to so those social media and my website. Good. My book can be found on Amazon. It's also in stores at Barnes & Noble and Urban Outfitters. Great. Any closing thoughts that you would like to share? Yes, I would like to share the importance of self-compassion, which is, I think we are all way, way too hard on ourselves. I'm way too self-critical. And this hurts us, it doesn't help us. It's not productive to get so angry with ourselves. And I think one of the maybe less recognized ways to deal with anxiety is to really give yourself a break but to have compassion for yourself or be kind to yourself. I think that's incredibly important. I like that. Yeah. Did you guys notice what she said about how many people struggle with anxiety? What was the number? What was the number? Oh, I believe it was about 40 million. Yeah. Um, 40, 40 million Americans struggle with anxiety you're not alone in this struggle. And, um, and so having compassion on that, so often we think that we're the only ones that are, that are living what we're living. And that's a really good point. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, we'll, we'll publish this again. You can see how to spell Terry. It's T-E-R-R-I. Bacow is B-A-C-O-W. Um, so check her out. Great research resource. I highly recommend it. And, I appreciate you uh, joining us today.